0: Hello, and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Mirrens. This week, our guest is David Thomas, a Vancouver-based immigration lawyer, or quasi-former immigration lawyer, who we invited on to discuss his career. David started practicing immigration law when he worked at the Vancouver law firm Bullhauser & Tupper in the early 1990s. He then started his own firm, where he developed a sizable practice which focused on investor immigration from South Korea. In September 2014, David was appointed chairperson of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, where he served a seven-year term. That recently ended and he is now back in Vancouver. During this episode, we discuss what practicing immigration law was like in the 1990s, how the practice of immigration law changed over time, whether it became less fun, Uh, things that David learned about the bureaucracy when he was head of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, David's attempt at uh, unsuccessfully running to be a member of Parliament, how he started a charity that delivered vitamins to North Korea, and tips for uh, new practitioners who are just getting started in their careers. This is the fourth interview that we have done on Borderlines with immigration lawyers who are either retired or at the tail end of their career. For previous uh, ones, you can listen to episode 54 with Dennis McRae, episode 53 with Joshua Son, and episode 21 with Daryl Larson. I know I've learned a lot from each of these interviews and uh, I've come away with some valuable ideas on how I want to structure uh, my own career. Anyway, I hope you enjoy today's episode. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was just I was just asking Dave about like I didn't even realize he had left the practice of immigration law. How many years was it that you were practicing in the area?
2: Well, I uh, started really in 1989 when I got called to the bar. I mean, even when I was articling at Bullhauser and Tupper, I'd done a little bit of immigration. It was sort of a fringe thing at the time, and uh, I left the partnership at Bullhauser in '94. Uh, I was doing mainly corporate commercial work, but um with immigration sort of being my little niche side thing and then I left in 94 to start my own law practice which did primarily uh immigration I did a few other little bits and pieces of things but it focused on immigration I did that for 20 years uh, before I went to Ottawa.
1: Wow and then uh and then this big move tell tell us a little (laughs) bit about how that happened.
2: (laughs) Well you know it's it's um it's funny because uh it wasn't something that i had really sort of seen or or planned you know and um you know and I guess I should back up a little bit i mean i i think that you know uh you know i was on this partnership track well i was I was a junior partner when i left Bullhauser um in 94 and it was at a time when i don't think the words uh work life balance were ever said in the same sentence together and um you know it was one of those things that that i was after and it was um you know a little bit surprising to people that i i decided to leave but uh one of the things that um, that i really wanted to do was to be a little bit more in control of the hours that i worked and i still wanted to have a um life <laughs> life but i want to have a, a you know a successful profitable uh, law practice and i also sure. I also really enjoyed the travel that I did. I did a lot of overseas travel, in the, in, especially in the 90s. And that's always hard to do in the context of a big law firm, you know, where people are always, um, you know, you're getting phone calls from partners going, what are all these t- travel disbursements on your docket for? What's going on here? You know, and it's <laughs> like, well, it's like this. It's going to get paid, you know, in a couple of months. It's the way it's kind of a different business model, you know, whereas, you know, traditionally... You know big law firms you know it's you bill by the hour and you send a bill out at the end of every month depending on how much time you worked on every file and and that's fine but it, but as, as people practice in the immigration world and when you've got competition like you know consultants that you've got to you know uh compete against in the open marketplace you have to be a little bit creative sometimes in how you approach your your billing strategies and so uh that for me at that time was very difficult in the context of a, of a large law firm. And, and so then going out on my own uh, suited me very well, because then I just had the free range to to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, there's also the headache of running your own small law firm as well, which maybe you
0: guys are familiar with as well. Oh, too yeah. familiar. Too
1: familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Did you have a clientele that came with you from Bullhouser when you started, or did you almost have to start anew?
2: Um, Well, it's an interesting uh, question because what happened really was uh, I had uh, Bullhauser. One of the reasons I was attracted to Bullhauser coming out of law school was the fact that it was a a firm at that time that had, uh, and this is in the 80s, a long time ago, had an office in Hong Kong and had an office in Taipei and also had an office in uh, Shanghai, China, which I'm told was the first Western law firm in Shanghai. Uh, And it was a maritime practice that, that they had there. And, um, and so the, the firm was very Asia focused um, very early on, particularly on the, on the corporate commercial side and and the real estate side. And so when I got hired on after articling, they put me into that Pacific Rim corporate group and uh, you know, when I got to the firm and they asked me, what kind of areas you interested in? I said, yeah, I'm interested in business law and I'm interested in immigration. And they're like, what immigration, why would we do that? And you know, and, and this is to put this into context, I mean, so back in the 1980s, um, you know, immigration was not a big thing. I mean, there, there's there's been ebbs and flows in immigration. But in the 1980s, it was it was very little it was like family class. And there was, uh, I think, a very, very, very short sort of uh, skilled worker kind of independent category. We called them those days. And it was a sort of an occupation demand list it was very, very limited. And uh, the Mulroney government decided to bring in something, well, there was sort of this entrepreneur program that they'd sort of been playing with about this idea about maybe bringing people in with business experience and capital to come into Canada. And then around 86, 87, they started talking about something called associated uh, entrepreneurs. And uh, believe it or not, in my last year of uh, of law school uh, at Osgood, I took an immigration law class I was probably the first student there to focus in on immigration <laughs> because they never heard it was all refugees and that sort of stuff and, um, and I re- remember writing a paper on the uh, then fledgling investor program uh, which was uh, hugely interesting to me because uh, I w- had an interest in business law but I was also very interested in immigration and and so uh, when I got to Bullhauser, I was sort of like looking down the future, kind of going, you know, this is a, this is a growing area and not just on the sort of business immigration side, but also on the uh, just if you're, if you're dealing with international companies uh, and you're focusing on things overseas, you, you, you know, the part of that is, um, is, a, is an immigration component. And I remember uh, there was this one time when I was still 30 junior at the firm And uh, I got a phone call from the most senior uh, partner who was in the corporate group up on the 32nd floor. And they phoned me and they're like, Thomas, get up here right now. We need you (laughs) get up there. And, uh, and uh, the firm, I know the firm had been working on a very, very big uh, forest industry transaction involved a a Japanese company that had invested a very big sum of money uh, here in British Columbia. And the firm had been busy on this for for months. And uh, there they were in the boardroom with the, vice president of the japanese company that been sent over from tokyo to uh, oversee their investment and he had a question he had two children and they couldn't get into school cuz they didn't have study permits and he needed to solve this problem i could just imagine his wife was probably bugging him every morning you know it's like fix this problem for the kids and he goes to the firm and they're like who knows anything about this you know oh yeah that associate down on the 26th floor and you know, and then I think that it sort of dawned on them, you know, when they realized, you know, suddenly, uh, I'm one of the most important lawyers in the room to this guy, because it's a very personal, personal, personal problem to solve, let's put it that way. And I think that all of us understand that, you know, that, you know, it doesn't sort of matter, you know, how, you know, how many assets you control, how big you, a company you run, you know, the immigration thing is a very personal thing to you and to your family and your children and to your future generations of your family. And uh, it's a very important thing, and I think that you know the the firm uh, began to understand that, and and then at, at an immigration practice started to build. They brought in Peter Scarrow, uh, another famous local practitioner, and uh, and uh, we hired Bill Caffel, uh an, an ex immigration officer, to to start up this um, little immigration team at Bullhauser, which I was a part of, and. Uh, And uh, so, again, I said it was a minority in my practice, but then the firm uh, started to uh, get interested in South Korea, which is interesting. And that is where um, I came into a sort of very busy practice. We had one lawyer at the firm that uh, he was about the same age as me, a big, tall, white guy, but he could speak fluent Korean. He'd spent some time there when he was younger, and he'd been seconded with a big firm there. And the, you know, the, the law firm in Vancouver was obviously looking for some big corporate clients trying to land a big fish. and uh, But he was there and he was networking a lot and he realized that there was a real demand for immigration. It was a real interest uh, in South Korea in immigration to Canada and I think that, um, you know, more so those days maybe even than today. and. Uh, he he, sort of sent a, a a message back saying, you know, maybe we should bring someone over like Dave Thomas to uh, to meet with some of these immigration consulting companies because we're really looking to partner with somebody that can help them do a large volume of cases. And that's how uh, I first went over there in 1992. And uh, and it was you know sometimes in 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 business you can find yourself in the right place at exactly the right moment. And that was exactly how it was for me. Um, And I'm sure if you you interview some other older guys like me, there are lots of us were, um, you know, uh, uh, it was a beaten track to South Korea, it was a good market. But right when I got there was just before Canada dropped the visitor visa requirement uh, for South Koreans. And, and it was still fairly difficult for them to get visas to go to the United States, although there's big interest in that. So suddenly, uh you know Korean Air was ramping up daily flights air canada was flying back and forth and there was this tremendous interest in immigration to uh to canada from south korea so that became a little bit of my niche and um and then uh i was going so i was traveling to korea about four or five times a year going for a couple of weeks at a time and then when i left um you know the firm was not interested in that relationship anymore and so they said you can continue working with those people if you want and so that was the backbone of my um my law practice when i started was the work i was doing in south
0: korea why did uh the firm lose interest i don't know to be honest with you. Yes. <laughs> it's like, but it it's was a little fish.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was a bigger fish i guess you know yeah. and it was kind of a, it was kind of a uh it was kind of a goofy thing right you know you go over there and you uh, you know sign up all these clients and and I you know the travel expenses were huge every time mm. with and stuff and but you they'd offset on the clients but you you know it, it was just sort of a different business model I don't think that they yeah. were really all that keen on it and um, and so I did the unthinkable and uh, walked away from my partnership and and um, mm. started my own little shop.
0: Have you found that the travel like did you did the travel decline as the years went on like we've interviewed a fair number of lawyers who practiced in the 90s and early 2000s. And it seemed like immigration lawyers traveled a lot more then than they do now. Like, I don't think I've ever left the province for work travel. I don't know about you, Deanna, outside of conferences. Neither. Like, did I think you it depends know-
1: very much on the nature of one's practice. I think the ones that travel a lot are those who are more involved in the investor style immigration, like the business immigration. I think those with skilled worker, with like uh, litigation practices, enforcement practices, or just like economic class, I don't think tend to be the big travelers. But I don't know. I don't know what you think. Um, it seems to me that those that are kind of doing more active recruitment of big business clients tend to be the ones that are doing most of the business travel.
2: I think. I think it's. I think it, it's true that it did decline. I think that you know around the you know around the turn of the century, it, you know, the internet was becoming more prevalent. Uh, it, it was, you know, just seemed to be less of a demand for it. And, and then, you know, when the ministerial instructions came along in 2008 and started to, you know, really change the nature of, you know, how you did business and then they canceled then all the business immigration programs, it was, it was, uh, a big shift. And, um, and so there really wasn't the, um, you know, the need to do it. But I mean, it was, um, I was just sad in a way, but for me personally, you know, I, I, by that time, I mean, I had a family with small kids and my wife preferred me to be around more often. So, you know, it it was fine. But, but I think that that's a fair um, observations that, uh, that you know, it, it, it it's not, the, the practice these days is is quite different than it used to be. and um, And in those days, it was a lot of, going out and uh, meeting people in person, having dinners and, um, yeah. you know, it's the other interesting thing too. And I was, I was listening to, uh, one of your former podcasts with uh, Dennis McCrae, who's you uh, know more senior than I am. And, uh, he's talking about the old days. And I remember going to, um, going to Seoul and every time I would go there, I could arrange to have, uh, a uh, Private one on one meeting with the um, program manager for immigration. And so they would let me into the embassy and we'd have a cup of coffee and a chat and everything else. And I'd usually have a list of, you know, 15, you know, problem cases are going, what the heck's going on? And, you know, he'd sit at his, his, at his desk and he would punch in all these file numbers for me and give me like a little verbal, you know, update. Oh, this one needs this, this one needs that. Oh, this one, I, I'll send a memo to the, I'll send an email yeah. to the, officer and get them on this one and stuff. And it was, you know, it was kind of, you know, I guess for whatever reason, I mean, they just kind of, those relationships all ended, but to be honest with you, they, it was super efficient to be able for to sure. go through. For and- sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. When I had, when I started practicing, the overseas offices were largely closed off, but Hornby, you could still call people the correct work permit mistakes or things like that. And now it's yeah. all as uh, Raj Sharma describes it, just the Borg where sometimes you don't even get like an officer acronym. It's just Immigration Canada at the bottom of a letter.
1: Not even (laughs) a location where the decision was made. So, you know, the system will ask you, where is your application being processed? And... You know, the answer is, I have no idea in the world. I couldn't even venture a guess right now. But, you know, I mean, I remember that I used to know the name of the head of the case management branch and we were on, you know, first name basis. And when I got into trouble, before we would go to litigation, we would, hey, is this something that we can work out between the two of us, you know? And a lot of the times we got things resolved in that 15 day window before we had to file a leave application, you know? I understand that like, the depersonalization of the immigration system, even just in the short space of, well, it's not that short, but the short space of my career, you know, like um, the attrition of any personal contact within the system. And now when something goes really awry, that there's literally no touch point, um, you know, that we've seen it even just in the short term. um, When I see, when people talk about 20 and 30 year careers, I can just imagine it's like, really threefold, um, the degree to which um, those things have gone away. And as you you referenced, Dennis's uh, uh, podcast, and I remember him talking about when you used to like walk into an immigration office with your application for a work permit, walked up to the desk, made your representations and walked away with your work permit at the spot, as opposed to you know, when your application now gets sent in through a portal, the applicant can't even see what's happened because it's been sent by their representative. It drops into a black hole for six months. They have no idea what's going on. An email that's not even got a name on it goes to the rep. Like, it's just like, again, like it's really, um, I understand that there's need for efficiency, but um, the, the lack of that human element really does show that the change in the nature of the way of doing business
2: well, let me share let me share a couple of insider secrets from mm-hmm. uh, my seven years in Ottawa.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, one thing that I learned uh, about the federal bureaucracy in Ottawa is that the average amount of time that a federal bureaucrat stays in the same position is twenty six months. And uh, that is just the nature of that business is that people are driven to uh, get promoted to the highest level they can to get, you know, the highest earning years before their pension sets in. And so there's really big uh, attrition within the federal bureaucracy to all departments, including immigration. The other thing that struck me, um, you know, I would, and of course, I was at a very senior level in Ottawa, and but as an outsider, um, but I saw a lot of resumes come across my desk because I was involved in a little bit of the HR and we were hiring people for the tribunal. And I did see people uh, who came from uh, CIC or IRCC, and um, I, how can I say this in a polite way? It, it struck me that there were some people that had been in fairly responsible decision-making positions at CIC who were not that high up in the overall ladder in the bureaucracy in Ottawa. And it always struck me. I was like, wow, these are, you know, such incredibly important decisions for, for our clients and for people who, you know, whether it's a work permit extension or an agency application or something like that. And the level of people making those decisions were, you know, to me anyway, maybe not to you guys, but to me, we're shockingly not very senior people, uh, tasked with making those very important decisions and uh so those are the uh the kind of takeaways i have from that uh and and i mean they let
0: summer students make you know life-changing decisions for people so yeah i think that's it we should get into like just for people who don't know like uh when were you appointed chair of the canadian human rights commission uh tribunal, tribunal tribunal The Commission
2: is a different sister organization. So that happened in 2014. So, and to back up a little bit, what happened was in 2013, um, I, uh, you know, I, was, I uh, was appointed as a part-time member of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal uh, based here in Vancouver. And so the Human Rights Tribunal is, is uh, basically a panel of administrative law judges who deal with discrimination complaints under the Canadian Human Rights Act. And so the um, the act calls for up to 15 members to be appointed a combination of full time members who must be residing in the national capital region. uh, And then a few um, part time members who could be scattered about uh, different regions. And so uh, I was appointed in 2013 to be a part time member here based in Vancouver. And um, and I uh, really enjoyed the work and it was it was it was very interesting to me. And
1: um, you did and, this while still maintaining a full time immigration practice.
2: basically. Yeah, which was wow. kind of interesting because, you know, they'd send me off to go do a hearing in Victoria for a week, uh, which was very fun and exciting except that, you know, by the time, you know, I got paid, uh, and you get paid about, you know, on a T4 with all the taxes deducted and everything else. So I'm sort of basically covering my overhead with my two full-time employees in my office back in Vancouver, and I'm kind of working for free. Uh, but you know, I didn't mind. It was really, it was pretty fun work. And, and, um, and so the, uh, tribunal chairperson job, uh, became available. It'd been vacant for a little while. And, um, I sort of thought about this and thought, you know, I wonder if I wonder if that might be something I could do. So uh, I inquired about it, and um, and it was, and my in- inquiry was received quite well. Um, there were a number of people obviously applying for the job, but um, w- what made me a little bit unique was I was actually from British Columbia, and uh, what I realized in my seven years in Ottawa is that nobody ever moves from British Columbia to Ottawa like why wouldn't you do that (laughs) and uh but i'm a little crazy my wife's from ontario and i went to law school there and um and this was in 2014 um that i got i I went to ottawa and i uh i speak some french uh because i went to school in, in switzerland many years ago and uh so combination of things they were interested in that and uh i remember they flew me out uh for an interview. Um, in early 2014, and it was at uh, what was then called the Langevin Block, the Prime Minister's Office uh, building, and it was very formal. I went up to this uh, top-floor boardroom, and uh, it overlooked Parliament Hill and uh, had all portraits of all the Prime Ministers along the hallway, and I sat down with this committee of people from the Department of Justice and the Minister of Justice office, the Privy Council office, and... uh, in the prime minister's office and they you know peppered me a bunch of questions and everything else and i left there and walked out of the building i thought wow that was pretty cool i i don't even care if i get the job that was such a cool thing you know and uh be in that building everything else and and then um and then a few weeks later i got a call from uh, peter mckay who was the minister of justice at the time and said congratulations we want like you to take the job and So then I had to break the news to my teenage daughters who (laughs) burst out into tears when they found out the family was moving to Ottawa. Oh, my goodness.
0: That's funny. What was the succession uh, like for, because you had a team. And did you know what the plan was before you uh, took the position or did you have to scramble? And how much time did you have? Like when Peter Edelman became a judge, he had pretty much zero time to transition files and... I think people had to fly back from abroad on vacation to scramble to figure out what to do is it the same when you're appointed to the chair of uh Canadian Human Rights Tribunal
2: it wasn't quite the same but you know and yeah that judicial appointment thing is yeah, pretty sudden but what happened for me was um they uh they asked if I could start two weeks later and uh I was like okay wait a second because no. <laughs> like I said you in the federal bureaucracy right where uh, the turnover happens all the time. People are used to this. Like, oh yeah, here's my two weeks' notice. I'll be gone, and all the work on my desk is somebody else's problem now. And you know, I'm just moving yeah. on, put my pencil down, and leave. Um, you know, in the real world, it's not quite like that. And especially if you've got, um, you know, a, a practice like I had. So I, I asked them to give me two and a half months to wrap things up. And. And so what I did was I went to go speak to our friends uh, Gordon Maynard, uh, Rudy Keyshard, and uh, Alex Stoichaovich, who I knew fairly well uh, over the years. And I said to them, "Hey, I've got a I've got a proposition for you. Um, I'm going to um, I'm going to take this job in Ottawa, but um, I've got two uh, full time staff with me, and I've got 220 active client files, and you know some of them are transactional, some of them are ongoing clients." And I said, I'm, I'm not looking to sell my practice, but I'm ready to give it to you. But I have two conditions. And I said, the first one is uh, I want you to offer uh, jobs to my my staff on the same terms and conditions that are on now. And the second ask is if I go to Ottawa and in six months, I realize I've made the dumbest mistake of my career, <laughs> I would like to come back and you guys make some room for me to carry on my practice with you. And so they said, yep, no problem. And in fact, one of my staff is still working uh, with them
1: uh-huh.
2: to this day. Um, but yeah, and so what happened was to, it, it, you know, was complicated. And this is the thing I was saying at the outset is that to unwind your law practice is very difficult. So, so I you know, with the, you know, the Law Society, I actually merged my practice with their practice, you know, right when I got appointed. So for a couple of months, I was technically uh, part of that law firm. And then i resigned and so all the coins and all the monies that was in trust and everything else um, stayed with them and um and then you know the the process of unwinding your own law firm i mean it took me probably eight or nine months i mean it was really uh you know lots of paperwork um audits of your accounts um you know, you know everything i mean it was really Uh, It wasn't that easy. It was a big. (laughs) It took a long time and a lot of effort to uh, to finally uh, close everything off.
0: Did you ever have to fly back from Ottawa to Vancouver just for a law society compliance? Uh, I don't don't
2: think I had to do that, but I did come back to Vancouver that first year. What happened was my wife and my daughters stayed uh, here in Vancouver, and I went by myself one year ahead. um, But and I came back several times. But yeah, I had. I actually owned my office space as well. So I had to, I had to sell that as right. well, which, uh, which in hindsight, I sold it at the wrong time. I went up <laughs> the value of up three, quite a lot, actually a couple of years later, but uh, you never, Oh, you
0: own the space you weren't leasing.
2: Yeah. I owned some space at the time. So, um, but yeah, and it was, it was kind of, you know, the whole move to Ottawa was kind of crazy, but you know, it, and, and it was a real big left turn in my career uh but you know the the human rights work is very interesting and there's and there's many cases that are immigration related believe it or not there are uh, a number of cases i've i've had over the years that had an immigration component and um and as the chairperson i was the person that delegated all the files and so um i had about a half caseload uh as a full-time member would because i had a lot of other management responsibilities as well but but um, I'd often earmark uh, immigration-related cases for myself just because of my my background and
0: expertise in
2: that area. So, um,
0: what sort so of immigration so issues would arise? Just like someone discrimination in the employment context against immigrants, or
2: um, well, more more so against um, CIC itself, or people mm-hmm. like, uh, for example, people um, who. Um, Well, for example, people, I'll give you some examples, people who had secondary um, uh, examinations at when they're going through the airport security, you know, they, and some people would get um, flagged for automatic, you know, sort of supplemental examinations based on being not on a no-fly list, but a a flying, person flying who we're kind of interested in. Or uh, we also... the
1: federal tribunal, it has to be a complaint against uh like a federal um body right. am i right yes right so so it could okay. be against
2: it could be against the airline it could be against right. uh Katza,
1: crown uh, corporation uh right i r c and immigration yeah. department yeah okay got it
2: um yeah.
1: okay
2: so fairly fairly neat stuff you know we had some really we had some really good stuff we actually had a uh we also had a um a kneecab case around the same time as the famous eShack case um. uh, uh, and, you know, as you guys as lawyers will remember that the ESHAC case has really fought on whether or not a, uh, a regulation is more superior, uh, to a, to a policy. I think that was sort of the, the issue there. And, uh, whereas the case in front of us was actually based on the good stuff. Like, is this discrimination based on uh, religion or national origin and that, that kind of stuff. But when the, um, federal court of appeal decided to, uh, uphold the uh, federal court ruling on the ESHAC case. Uh, that case, unfortunately, got withdrawn uh, and the complaint was dropped because it was then able, it, the, the complaint was then able to get her citizenship uh, without removing her bail. I think some other good cases, there's some other cases around, um, you guys still call it the black hole of CSIS when somebody gets uh, a background check referred to CSIS and then you don't know what happens for like a year That's, or something. Yeah. That still happens. A year, oh yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, I haven't had one of those for a while, but um, I don't think that yeah. it's
0: changed. This yeah. year, it's the black hole of Edmonton. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's
1: true. Yeah. Yeah, but... that's
0: true. And I mean, obviously, the Canadian the appointment to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal is a left turn in your career. You also ran for office at one point.
2: That's right. Very, very long time ago. Was that uh,
0: when you were with Bullhauser, or when you had your own firm?
2: No, it's fairly a couple of years later. In 1997, I was uh, the candidate in West Vancouver for the um, pro, the then obscure fifth party of Parliament, the Progressive Conservative <laughs> Party, <laughs> who only had two members sitting, and Jean Charest was the leader. Uh, that was 25 years ago. and Here, Jean Charest is running uh yeah. leadership uh, again. But yeah, you know, I'm. That's kind of you know, I'm. I that's kind of who I am, really. I'm sort of a kind of socially progressive guy, but I'm a fiscal conservative, you know, I'm, and, and so that seemed like a good fit for me. So, you yeah, I was, I, I ran and uh, you know, as my classmates at my 20th year high school reunion um, pointed out, they said, Dave Thomas, the only guy who could win, who, who could win less votes than the NDP in West Vancouver. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How uh, did your practice like um, when you're campaigning full time? or is that why you lost <laughs> why you had, uh, no, you you know, had to manage an immigration practice you
2: know it wasn't it didn't go on for that long you know it was it was about i guess a five week kind of uh, mm. in fact the funny thing was right when the writ dropped the writ dropped a little bit unexpectedly and i had a trip planned to south korea that i really couldn't get out of and uh and so i had i went to korea for like three days and i came back and uh And as I'm in the car from the airport, my campaign manager's on the phone. He goes, He goes, let me just read you something from today's Vancouver Sun. I'm like, Okay. And he goes, Well, we've been trying to get in touch with candidate Dave Thomas for several days now, and he just (laughs) seems to be completely missing. And I'm like, Okay, you're making that up. You're just giving (laughs) me a hard time. So, no, he was not making it up. So, that was, I'm now letting that secret out. Yes, I was in South Korea during the writ, but. (laughs) <laughs> the rest of it was uh it was just like the it was so crazy it was so much fun i really had a good time though it was really really fun uh you know nine all candidates debates it was it's big riding and it was um it was a lot of fun but you know that i would say that that's not the reason uh that i got appointed in 2014 but i think that you know these big appointments are you know they have a little bit of a political tinge to them and, and having that sort of pedigree kind of background you know Helps that uh, you know when you when you're being appointed by um, you know a government, it's a cabinet decision, right? The yeah, decision yeah. to appoint you has to be approved by cabinet. So, you know, uh, you know, often if you're if you've got a very strong
0: background with the wrong party, it may not happen for you. So, so. we've interviewed even like some uh, ex immigration ministers who've uh acknowledge that even when it comes to trp requests you know the party does uh matter a bit really yeah interesting yeah uh well i don't know (laughs) it is
2: what it is right but you know it's 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 um and sometimes the process works very well and sometimes it doesn't and i and i would say that um you know to the credit of the of the liberal party uh when justin's team uh took over they did change the process for these uh gic appointments and it's a little bit more uh transparent um and in fact the the nice thing was that i had a chance to participate on those selection committees for members of the tribe and um and so it was uh it was good to have some input on that but ultimately decisions are you know they are they are politically uh uh I wouldn't say influence, but I mean, but it, it, just to say, it does. It's not that it plays a zero role uh, at the end of the day.
1: What and insights that- do you have, kind of looking back on three years as an immigration practitioner? I sort of wonder. Uh, once you've wrapped up in immigration practice and you're kind of able to look back on it uh, in hindsight, is it an area that you think was like a good choice for you? It's, is it something that you think was, is sort of like an area you would recommend others getting into in the future? Um, You know, I'm just kind of interested on your perspective in that.
2: You know, uh, for me personally, what what really uh, I feel looking back on you know the 25 years I was doing it was that you know how enriched my life was by meeting so many very interesting people, accomplished people uh, from around the world, and I would say that even a number of my former clients have remained friends with me uh, to this day, is because they're just great people and we get along really well, and we we we've continued on um, as friends after the business relationship, and and that. Uh, has been, I think, for me, you know, what was really the most enriching thing about it is, and as I said this before, you know, you really, uh, you really touch people's lives in a very significant way when you're when you're an immigration lawyer. And it's it's funny how you know years later, uh, I had so many people when they were getting their citizenship, uh, their citizenship ceremony, having their picture taken with the citizenship judge, and then got their certificate in their hand. And they'd send me this photo, like, it's like, that. you heard from them for years, and like, you're the guy that helped me, you know, change my life, and got me permanent residence tests And here I am now four years, five years later, as a citizen of Canada, I'm so proud of this moment, and you're the person that I'm thinking of. And you know, and I, you, you guys probably have the same thing. I, uh, you know, it's, I don't think it's that uncommon, but it but you really do. Uh, make such an impact on people's lives and I think that's totally different than being a business lawyer or a real estate lawyer you know litigation it's just it's just not the same thing but in immigration you know you really have that chance to to really help people and and I just feel like in some ways I've been swimming in a pool of good karma for a number of years now yeah
1: Yeah, (laughs) for sure that,
2: that chance you know and the I other think that thing is you... a
1: major driver, you know, that it's it's about the people that you meet and about sort of like following people along on these journeys that generally um have a positive outcome. I think that um it does very much. I mean, everyone knows that immigration has its own little niche areas. I think. For some, um, you know, people that are doing more of the litigation and enforcement, uh, you tend to be following people more through a journey that more often than not has a negative outcome rather than a positive outcome. So it can be a little bit more uh, disillusioning over a longer trajectory. I just, my my sort of follow-up question was, um, in terms of the decision to change the path of your career, was part of it like immigration burnout, frustration around how the practice was going, or just that you kind of were like ready for a new
2: era? Um, well, I think in a way, um, it was a combination of things. I was ready for, uh, you know, something new in this. And, and I, you know, having, you know, run for parliament 25 years ago, I mean, there was part of me that, you know, there's that old saying that says, you know, that there are two kinds of people that run for office, right? People who uh, want to be somebody. And people who want to do something and you know i always wanted to sort of be able to sort of give back in a, in a way and, and try to do something that i felt was meaningful and so this chance to go to ottawa in a very senior level and in a very important area like human rights just seemed like a great opportunity for me to be able to do something uh in a different way than i thought before and so you know when the opportunity presented itself and you know and um Few people thought I was crazy, but um, my wife was generally supportive. You know, it, uh, it it really felt like the right thing to do. And having said that, you know, the other part of your question was, you know, the you know I had a very uh, interesting practice because of my my background in corporate law. Uh, I didn't do exclusively business immigration, but I did a lot of it, and I was the guy. I was a kind of a go to guy for. Uh, entrepreneurs who had uh, terms and conditions on their visas, they had to, to, to do something a significant business investment within two years of landing. That was a big part of my practice for a long time. And, uh, and it was something wasn't that, a lot
1: of people doing that with the same kind of special, like specialization, I would say.
2: I think that's right. You know, and I used to speak at, at you know, CBA uh, CLEs and stuff like that on the, on that topic because I was one of the few that kind of really had that as a niche. And, um, and so then all that went away and, uh, and then, so you're just kind of left with, well, I'm doing work permits, I'm doing some skilled worker stuff, but then skilled worker became difficult when, you know, you know, after the ministerial instructions, I started limiting the, uh, the intake and, and, uh, it just became for, sort of, for me anyway, became less fun. I, I, you know, it just it was just like, it just was harder and it was just, uh, Uh,
1: ranking and a number and turning uh, everybody into a bit of a widget yeah
0: yeah uh, I think less fun is also the words that uh, Dennis used (laughs) yeah well Dennis
1: used less fun a whole bunch yeah he was like well I won't tell you what Dennis's idea of fun is I heard a lot about that Um, it's not always politically appropriate but um, (laughs) his idea of fun was definitely um it's a bygone era thing, but, um, but definitely the part about like you know walking into a room with like a briefcase full of uh, you know liquor bottles and sitting down and j- chatting and they're like working it out and like you know sitting down with the you know with people and kind of um, coming up with solutions and you know making powerful submissions all of this kind of stuff. He liked the three the theater the drama. He liked the you know compassionate stuff. He liked you know coming up with clever strategies and all this kind of thing. And I think he. Felt like it became very much like you know plugging widgets into holes and turning people into scores and rankings and all that kind of stuff i think you found it very disillusioning
2: yeah you know it's definitely it definitely has changed uh over the years for sure and you know i remember when i was at Bullhauser again i guess junior lawyer and people were asking me you know why are you interested in immigration law and i d- distinctly remember Uh, a 1985 edition of Canadian lawyer magazine that I read when I was in law school and they were interviewing some high profile uh, immigration lawyers. I think Dennis might've been one of them in the article. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about, you know, flying back and forth to Hong Kong and other Asian places and doing these applications and charging ridiculously high fees for, you know, work that wasn't all that complicated. And I was like, Oh, that sounds pretty good
0: to me. Actually, Yeah. And, uh, yeah. The other thing you did though, and I definitely want to mention it was you, um, I don't remember if it started from an immigration application, but you started that charity to deliver vitamins to North Korea.
2: Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's quite interesting. Yeah. And so, uh, so, so South Korea was sort of my niche market for, for 20 years. And I, uh, I always uh, advertised in the Korean newspapers and I had Korean speaking staff and, you know, real funny, story, funny follow-up to that is that my, my son uh, speaks fluent Korean and has been living in Seoul for the last four years. He just got his, his MBA last year from Seoul National University. So this family of mine uh, has had this very long connection with with South Korea for a long time. Um, but anyway, uh, I got to know uh, a, a charity called First Steps and a woman named Susan Ritchie, who um, who has been the official translator for three of our prime ministers, um, Kretien. Uh, Martin and Harper, and when you know when our prime ministers would speak with the president of South Korea, she'd be the Canadian translator, and very interesting woman. And she started a little charity here in Vancouver out of her basement called First Steps, and she um, donates uh, soybeans from Ontario uh, to North Korea. It's very complicated to do this, but in the process, she's now at the stage where she's uh, providing this very nutritious soy milk to a hundred thousand underprivileged North Korean children every day. And uh, these are children that are wow. in orphanages or uh, in poor rural uh, areas. And um, and so anyway, I uh, over a number of years, I helped uh, raise money for her. And then I had this idea uh, with three of my former clients. Uh, I said, you know, I had different skills and talents. And I said, why don't we come together and try to do something uh, to try to, to bolster this. And so we came up with a, a company called One for One, which was uh, the idea was that we would be selling uh, vitamins. And for every vitamin that we sold, we would donate to, um, to uh, North Korean orphans and, and go there through um, piggybacking basically onto uh, First Steps. And uh, and so and we found a local manufacturer that, that helped us with the um, the manufacturer and the donated product and everything else. And so that led to two, two very interesting trips myself uh, to North Korea. Um, and in fact, the second trip, I took my son who was about sixteen years old uh, with me, and I can just say, young mind completely blown. <laughs> It was like, it was, and that's probably part of the reason he's in in South Korea today. I mean, it's an incredible experience to to see, you know, what a stark difference uh, North and South Korea are. And, um, you know, I always say to people, you go to Seoul, it feels like you're walking 10 years into the future. I mean, they're so high tech and they're doing it. I mean, it's moving so fast. And you go to Pyongyang and it's like, you just walked 50 years into the past. It's, you
0: know. Well, I think I remember, uh, uh, I think I saw photos. Of a, um, your son at like a North Korean school with kids who are his age and he's a head taller uh, than yeah. everyone else just because of like the malnutrition. Yeah, um,
2: that's a that's a real thing. Actually, that is a real thing. Uh, he's freakishly tall on his own. He's six foot six. Today. Yeah, actually, I could also just be <laughs> but like father but like true. son. <laughs> but it's true that they are uh, they are uh, you know very. It, 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 there's a real malnutrition problem, and I think that you know right now. We're not hearing much, but I think because of the pandemic and some other issues that, that there may be a bit of a famine going on right now. And uh, and you know it's it, anyway it's a it, it it was an incredible experience. Unfortunately, that whole charity thing uh, wound up when I moved to Ottawa, and we um, we didn't go as far as we would have liked to have uh, done with that. But uh, but we did some good, and it was uh, it was a good experience while we uh, had that
0: opportunity. So with those like there's. Uh, Starting your immigration practice, running to be an MP, starting the charity, uh, Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Are there any other like pivot or moments in your, we'll call it all your immigration career (laughs) that uh, were like defining moments or moments that you especially look back on fondly?
2: Well, uh there are lots of, you know, uh, you know, especially the travel and meeting people and, and going to different parts of the world. You know, I did several trips to the Middle East, um and I did uh, uh you know quite a number of trips to Asia. I probably went to Korea about 50, 60 times. Uh, you know, and there are lots of um lots of great moments along the way. Um, but I think it's mostly the people at the end of the day. When I look back on it, I think it's really mostly the um the opportunity to to really get to know people and I guess like unlike maybe some other lawyers I always uh, gave a lot of my personal time to be to be social like if a client invited me for dinner uh, I'd often go and uh, spend time with them and get to know them as a person and I think that they appreciated um, the opportunity to get to know that you know a Canadian someone was born and raised here and and I think that that um, you know speaks, a lot, uh, to, um, you know, the nature of the people, frankly, the people, when you think about it, the people who have really got the inclination to pick up, uh, from where they are, where they were born and raised and to, you know, to move themselves and their family to a foreign country. I mean, it takes quite an extraordinary person and personality time to do that. And, uh, I think within that pool of people who, who have the, um, you know the motivation to do that. You'll find you'll find some very very interesting people, and uh, and for me that's really, as I say the biggest enrichment for me is getting to know uh, those people on a personal level and 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 really uh, enjoying their company and uh, the experience of knowing them.
0: Yeah, the part that I often reflect on is when someone who just moves here in their first three months goes to all these places or has all these experiences that me having lived here most of my life never have done it's like you have clients who come are like oh yeah we just uh, rented a boat to go uh, watch the world cup on a, a yacht off uh, like bowen island or oh we've gone hunting in revelstoke and i just sit back and i'm like i never do any of these things <laughs> like uh, my clients are uh, you know learning more about it than i uh i know
2: yeah isn't that true that's my wife always says we have to go to Bouchard Gardens one of these days. Because everybody <laughs> we know that goes there.
0: We've never. Been.
2: And every yeah. special
1: sponsorship application you filed, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: right. <laughs> I guess those things are uh, are in common, but um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's it, you know, I, I think that for young people today, it's like kind of a different experience on immigration, mm-hmm. and I think that um, you know, it's you know, it does feel like. To me, as a, I feel like a bit of an outsider uh, to immigration these days, but it does feel a little bit less. Uh, seems a little more faceless, I guess, in the
0: process. And well, and especially the last few years. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The pandemic yeah. has really been a hard hit because I feel like um, it's kind of entrenched this idea that client service is no longer a thing, um, and uh, there's there just doesn't seem to be the same expectation of of client service
0: or um you talking about at IRCC or at McRae I'm just kidding
1: (laughs) yeah yeah no no at IRCC (laughs)
0: yeah
2: touche yeah and you know I'll tell you something that that struck me in seven years at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal a lot of the cases we had were with uh federal government agencies or departments like IRCC and uh, often employment related, and uh, and sometimes you know customer related for services uh, being rendered. And it it struck me sometimes that you know some of the complaints were over issues that were not sort of life altering, severely damaging. Uh, you know, of course, the discrimination related, which is not defending discrimination in any event, or, or you know, and but you know, the, but you know, considerable resources devoted to. Uh, complaints, and, and a lot of times the complaints are not substantiated at the end of the day as well, but, you know, as I say, considerable resources uh, devoted to the investigation and inquiries into, into complaints um, that impacted people's lives in a negative way, and it was always a little bit funny for me kind of thinking, wow, you know, I guess think of all these times where, you know, something went wrong for uh, a, a client, uh, and there was maybe some culpability on the part of IRCC, and they don't have that kind of resource or or you know uh people paying attention to you know how badly their lives were impacted over something that went wrong and 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 i was always left with that thinking wow you know like it's it's kind of disproportionate when you think about it because and and not i'm not saying that ircc is always wrong but i think on the other hand and this is one of the things i'll tell you this is i'll tell you this is a an outsider at a senior level in Ottawa. I told all my people, I said, listen, the worst thing I've seen sitting on the other side of the table from the federal government uh, over the years is when bureaucrats never admit they made a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. That's the worst thing. And we're all human and we all make mistakes. And what makes us different is what we do to fix those mistakes after we do it. And so I don't want anyone ever to dodge admitting when well, we've done something wrong. And when we've done something wrong, we own it and we fix it, right? Because I'm sure you guys can think of many, many of those uh, examples in your own careers where you just know somebody did something, made a mistake, and they just won't own up to it and they won't fix it. And and that's wrong, you know? And so it, to the extent that I had some influence over that, uh, I never never let that happen and never, uh, never encouraged anybody to, to to walk away from the ownership of something that went wrong. And, uh, and that's, you know I think one of the one of the valuable things I could bring to that position having been opposite IRCC for a long time was to sort of bring that perspective. The other, the other thing that they heard, they, they, they in some ways, the uh, some of the people in the were happy to see me leave because I was always complaining about certain things. But you know, one thing that you you could relate to this as well was like, you, why do they make their websites so complicated all the time? Right? Why do they want to change them every six months? It's like, you know, it's not like the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal has got competitors and we have to have a better website than them. No, there's only one place here, and 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 our our overriding goal should be to to make. Access to the information easy for our stakeholders. Not to, you know, uh, upgrade the system every six months so that you know we try to click on something. Oh, now you have to download the latest version of Adobe or Java or something, and you know, yeah. or, you know, it won't work because you know, I'm not bandwidth. I mean, you know, that's the thing that sort of that was a be- constant battle for me. To be, to be honest, it's like listen, we 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 have to remember we're, we're dealing with the public, here. we're dealing with marginalized uh, populations. That really don't non-English understand.
1: speakers and you know, sometimes people that don't have the most sophisticated access to uh to technology and all this sort of thing, especially with the like uh you know, more low-income immigrants and all that kind of stuff as well. But I, I think the point that you're making too, in terms of the, the communications, like through the pandemic, it's like it's impossible to get through to the call center. Web form requests are not answered, and yet the escalation of um, enforcement action on the basis of misrepresentation has only gone up like twice or threefold. Like it's just, it's, it's really intense. And so, um, you know, the kind of thing that you're saying, like, um, you would think that there'd be a little bit more give and take, you know, in terms of that recognition of culpability, uh, there's really, there just seems to be no give at all. And, um, and so just the, 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 um, you know, I'm just thinking about. <clears throat> there was a time, like um, before I went into before I went to law school. Even I worked as an adjudicator, and what I found was that just sometimes, like getting on a phone with a with a with an applicant who was seeking um, uh, seek, this was they were looking for funds based on um, a complaint that they had made based on uh, this was I was um, dealing with the tainted blood scandal at the time. And sometimes even just making contact with the person and just having a two-minute telephone conversation would mean that the entire claim would go away. And so this sort of notion of the efficiency of like, well, just keeping the human contact away is going to make the process run more efficiently. And I think sometimes when there's like the stakes are so high, it's just a certain amount of recognition and acknowledgement of the distress that someone is feeling. It goes a long way, but that like rebuffing all of the effort saying, you know, like not letting somebody know that their application has been received, it means that there's going to be 30 other requests, you know, so it's like, it's a, it's a, an ideology of diminishing returns. So (laughs) I understand this idea, but I think that, um, the idea of there being some recognition of the needs on both sides. I think as you're saying, it it actually, um, it it makes sense, the idea of trying to like reduce the transactions and please don't write to us unless you have a really serious concern. Don't send more than one request. Okay, okay. But there does like removing all human interaction also is not not the answer, so.
0: Well, and what, uh, I mean, I was thinking about what you were saying, David, in terms of the recourse that someone has when they're trying to immigrate versus uh, a discrimination claim before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. I don't know what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, like does it order monetary awards?
2: Yeah, so yeah, yeah, damages up to $40,000 on the statute, but also lost wages and other expenses that people can claim.
0: Whereas like a blatant mistake in a visa application, you know, if you judicial review, if someone gets a costs award after having spent their own money on legal fees, if someone in the immigration world gets a cost award of like five hundred dollars, it's considered a huge win and a rarity. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, the person's out, lost wage, couldn't visit their uh, dying relative. Um, the spent, amount of recourse that spent ten thousand uh,
1: dollars on legal fees. Yeah, you know. <laughs>
0: like it's it's just very different treatment. I've been interested that I. I remember when IRCC assumed control of passport services from uh, Department of Foreign Affairs in 2014, I remember thinking at the time, will the fact that now they're dealing with like all Canadian or most Canadian citizens at some point force that department to improve its quality services, or will they eventually just put the thumb on us? And I uh, just like watching the passport delays. And I don't know if you saw yesterday that they announced that... um, in order to address you know, those systemic issues with passport delays, that the department is ordering 801 chairs so that people can uh, be more comfortable when they sit and wait. And to me, it was just emblematic of often the approaches taken to try to fix issues in like visa processing. Like we're going to, we've talked about this on the podcast, how like it's changing the blue horizontal bar that marks processing time and replacing it with a green vertical bar will be announced with great fanfare (laughs) and just how like some of the decisions just um, don't seem to address the underlying issues.
1: Do you guys ever play those like silly little time management games on your phone, you know, where you... You have to like, you know, the little nurse has to run around the room and like deliver the <laughs> glass of water to the patients in the room. And then you use points to put more beds into the <laughs> into the room. It kind of sounds like one of those, like to help the patient's meter go up <laughs> It sounds wow. a little bit like that doesn't actually fix the problem. It just is like a bit of a band-aid solution.
2: Well, you know that it, it—I tell you—it it was a very eye-opening experience. You know, like I said, going into Ottawa from first of all from the West Coast, but also from the private sector, and having worked on the other side of the table, and, and it really, you know, you, you look at those things about the 800 chairs. I mean, that's the thing I could I could see that for sure. And and one of the things that um, I think gets lost is, you know, who we, you know who are we serving at the end of the day, right? And there's always a tendency, I think, to try to make things, you know, in bureaucracy, try to make things easier for the bureaucrats. Whereas, you know, it's really, you know, we really should remain focused on the people that we're there to serve. And that, I think, and I'll be very frank about that. I mean, that's one of the tensions, I think, that that exists there. And, you know, and and there's, you know, several, battles i can remember fighting just on that whole point about you know like are we doing this to make our lives easier or is this really going to improve services for the people that were that we that were paid to service here you know yeah. and and it sounds like a kind of a thing crazy uh, way to look at it or a question to ask but the truth is it's it's very true and and you see that sometimes is that is that um you know that 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 ottawa is a bubble And people who live there kind of joke about it being a bubble, but it really is a bubble, and it's and sometimes it's very far removed from the real lives of Canadians that um, you know that that depend on them for uh, for service.
0: No, it. um... So, do you think you'll you're back? I think you said you're still part time with the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. Are you planning on diving back into immigration?
2: uh that's a little bit of an unknown question but i'll tell you I, what i am doing right now is i am uh i am finishing up one big decision for the um the chrt it's immigration related so look for that in, in a couple of months from now that'll be very interesting to the immigration bar and i'm uh, now working as a part-time uh, contract uh mediator for the british columbia human rights tribunal so i'm doing yeah. a number of mediations for them and another Another immigration gig that I've been appointed to and hasn't started yet is I am the vice chair of the tribunal for the
0: College of Immigration and Citizenship Consultants. Oh, neat. Congrats. Yeah, wow, so, that
1: sounds interesting. Is
0: yeah, that something thought, you can do from here? Or do you have to move to... I don't even a, know where they're based out of.
2: They're based in Burlington, Ontario, Burlington? but that, that'll be a part-time job for me again a few days a month. And uh, But I thought... You know, I'll bring kind of a unique combination of administrative uh, law adjudication uh, together with the background in immigration law. It could be of value to them, and I think that they they saw that too. So we'll see how that what goes. This is
1: like on disciplinary kind of hearings, is that yes, discipline,
2: yeah. and I think a mostly discipline. I think in a couple of other related areas. Like I said, I haven't started yet, but I have been appointed, so we'll see how that goes. Oh,
0: interesting. Wow. I was browsing briefing notes, and there was this redacted appointment to uh, college redacted so maybe that was the like yeah. your appointment um I've, oh, really? I've learned i've learned not to request the copies of those briefing notes because they are just heavily heavily redacted but uh maybe that's yours
2: could be exactly okay. by the way i want to commend you guys on this podcast i think this is a great show and uh, wonderful for you guys to do this and to uh, reach out to the uh, the larger immigration community uh yeah.
0: Well, sure. it's funny you mentioned uh, Peter Scarrow, because he used to work at Larley Rosenberg when I started here. Um, and maybe I'll reach out to him as well. So you guys overlapped at Bullhauser.
2: Yes, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Peter uh, Peter and I are still good friends when we go for a uh, beer once in a while. Yeah, And uh, we talk on the phone regularly. And, uh, you know, Peter, um, <laughs> he's quite a character. You got to interview him. Yeah. <laughs> he, he taught me a lot when I was uh, just starting out.
0: No, and I do like your message um, about how it's important to stay social. Um, Yeah, like it's, I think the pandemic, I'm hoping that, you know, remote everything and Zoom everything is not, uh, is not a permanent, as permanent a fixture as it seems to be. Yeah.
1: yeah, I know it was something that when I was on the CBA executive, there was a real fear that once you go there, it's very hard to go back and they were talking specifically about the conferences, um, but I feel like, um, you know, it is something that once you've done it, the convenience factor um, does kind of win the day and I think that like, I don't know, just even just personally that once once you're doing it, you're just kind of that's the the mode of doing your work. And uh, I agree with you, Steve, I think that, um, you know, it becomes a bit of not yeah. an addiction, but it's just sort of like it just becomes your mode of doing things. And I I, I would like to see some of that.
0: Human yeah, not so much work wise, more just like lawyers meeting up. Um, That's why like you both know, I started that because the, uh, the CBABC kind of breakfast social is all still on Zoom. Like I started mm. a monthly dim something, and uh, it's just those little things that you can't do remote. Like our firm in 10 minutes is doing a fried chicken contest because oh. uh, it's National Fried Chicken Day today.
1: <laughs> but, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, definitely even
1: I think even client meetings, like I think some of them, certainly the majority of that is still going to remain on Zoom. I think that that's um, there's there's still value in that. But I think, you know, for us to go to a fully, you know, monitor like digitized uh, practice, I think I do think I go with Dennis that something is lost. I mean, all of our hearings now are online. You know, I do think that. you know, I, I I get that it's it's very efficient and all that sort of thing, but um, I kind of it's, to some part of me is starting to kind of miss that like face to face element with some of my clients that I don't ever get into the same room as, as them anymore.
0: Any uh, final tips to the people just starting out, Dave?
2: Well, like I said, embrace it and uh, and give your clients the give them your the clients a piece of yourself, right? Let them get to know who that's you right. are as a, as a Canadian. And I think that will help them. And uh, it just might help you along the way as well.
1: Yeah, I yeah. think that's a great piece of advice. I like it.